Let's go. What's up? What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, September 17th. I'm super excited to have all of you guys here. Hopefully, you got an opportunity to tune in to the episode I released earlier today. This one was with Pradeep Sangha, the complete man. Had a great conversation with him. I really enjoyed chatting with him. Pradeep, thank you so much for coming on to the show, man. Appreciate you joining me. Um, big shout out to... Um, Ken's nearest neighbor podcast. He had Vin Vashista on the podcast. Uh, I got to listen to a little bit of it, man. What a great episode. It's always good when uh, those two get together, man. Uh, especially here in the office hours. I haven't seen those guys in quite some time. Hopefully you guys come back, man. It's been a while, Vin. Ken, where y'all at? Um, big shout out to everybody who's helped me with this course that I'm creating. I've had a lot of great people review it. Uh, so the Employable Data Scientist, that's the name of the company. I'm thinking the course is going to be titled The Data Science Mindset, but big shout out to um to the, to the people that helped review it. Tom, Greg, Vin, Mark, Antti, uh, Austin, Matt, you guys have been helping me tremendously. Elizabeth as well. Thank you guys so much for helping make that course um, something special. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, man, if you guys are joining us on LinkedIn, if you're joining us on YouTube or Twitch, don't be shy. Come and join us in the Zoom room. Uh, there's a link to go ahead and get into the Zoom room right there on the comment box of wherever it is you're watching. Happy hour number 50, man. 50 weeks straight. Been out here doing this thing. In two weeks, it's going to be the one-year anniversary of this happy hour thing, uh, which I think is crazy. Been doing this every Friday for an entire year. Been here helping y'all out. Hopefully, you've enjoyed it. Uh, we've had, you know, started off real small. It got really big and busy for a while. Got small again, then big and busy. So hopefully we can keep this thing going, man. Super excited that um, that you guys have stuck with me all these weeks, this entire year. Um, so let's start off with a uh, interesting topic. What I think is an interesting topic. We're having a little pre-discussion in the Zoom room before we got you know things kicking off. Tom was having a little bit of uh, trouble with his with his uh, audio setup, and he's blaming it on. Uh, uh, just getting reacclimated to the Linux environment. So I'm wondering, man, all you guys out there, data scientists in the room, in the chat, what what do you guys use? Are you guys Mac? Are you Linux? Are you Windows? And why? I need explanations. I need reasons. Tom, go but for it. First, yeah, I need to clarify. Um, I didn't realize my mic was low. And then when you told me, it took me five seconds to do on Linux, what would have taken me maybe a lot longer on windows. Mm -hmm. I used to have this old picture. It was funny. It was just really bad emoji type pictures, but one was uh, someone bemoaning because they had to pay for an update. The same was true on Mac. And then the Linux guy saw an update notice, oh, more free stuff. And it just updates for free. Even Linux Mint, which I love to use, and it's just I've been using it for seven years now, and it has just steadily gotten better every year. So it's Mac is basically Linux you pay for, which I, I guess that's okay. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, what about the rest of the room? Costab, good to see you here. Russell, Anti, Anti's not feeling too well, but uh, Costab, what about you, man? What what is it that you use? Yeah. Um... First off, I'm happy to be here. I mean, last last week, thanks uh, to 
all of you guys, you guys answered a fair few of my questions last week on quantum. Um, but I guess on this topic, um, I've recently become the main fence sitter on this kind of topic because so I grew up with Windows, right? I grew up like at home with Windows, didn't really code until I was at university. And that's when I started pick up, uh, picking up uh, Linux systems and things like that, right? Um, I find, and, and I was pretty much anti-Mac until I joined the company I'm at right now where we all use Mac, right? Um, so it was kind of forced down my throat a little bit. But I found it surprisingly um, easy to use, and I can see I can see different benefits to different systems, right? So with Linux, you get that full scale kind of freedom. Um, so if I had to work on a local machine and I didn't have cloud access, and I had to work on local data um, with my own graphics card, Linux all the way because I have full control over how the graphics card interacts with everything else. I've got you know I've, I've worked in a defense um, industry job before where I'm doing. Uh, you know, object detection and stuff for um, for underwater robotics. So you can't have cloud access. There's no point. There's underwater. A robot can't see. You don't have internet, right? So in that situation, you need to learn to have pretty tight control over your interactions with your graphics card. So Linux, by you know, no doubt, beats that all ends up. But when you're talking about maintainability across a larger workforce. Let's say you've got 20 or 30 data scientists or machine learning engineers, and they're trying to deploy a solution to, you know, and it's all cloud-based solutions, so AWS, GCP-based solutions. I've found it that I spend no time at all managing my personal machine or my environments, right, other than basically package installation. Um, whereas previously on a purely Linux machine, like I had a Dell with like Linux, Ubuntu 18 put on it. I spent a lot more time managing the, you know, the OS itself so that I could get to work. In this case, I'm not having to do that at all. I just kind of log in and GCP gives me all the graphics power. So there's that kind of trade-off in terms of how much individual IT support you need. Whereas if something goes wrong with my laptop now, I can ship out a brand new Mac and then just log into that in about 15 minutes, I'll be up and running again. So there's that benefit to using like a more managed service like a Mac or a Windows machine. And I see that that's a little bit better with Mac and the preference for that is because the, the, all the hardware is really packaged in, right? But personally, I actually use a Windows machine uh, at home because I can, I mean, I can change out the graphics card anytime I like, no problems. Plus I don't have to deal with the operating system level details like I would on a Linux machine. I can still use subsystem Linux if I wanna use my full terminal. Um, so the latest subsystem Linux seems to have most of the terminal commands that you could usually want. I'm just waiting for in the premiere mode of, sorry, not the premiere, in the preview mode of Windows, they've got the graphics card, um, the NVIDIA uh, plugins working with WSL. So I'm just waiting for that to come into one of the more stable releases. Um, and then to be honest, uh, I I reckon there'd be, once we get to that stage, there's as much value in running Linux internal to Windows as there is running fresh Linux. That's kind of where I sit. Thank you very much, Costa. Russell, Matt, what about you guys? What are you guys into? Uh, Anti here in the chat says that he is uh, Windows just because his that's what his work computer is, um, as he's Linux and Mac for other stuff, but nothing against them. Yeah, evening all. Uh, I use Windows much like Anti does because it's my uh, my employer's primary 
ecosystem. Um, so I use that a lot. I have a, a Mac at home, but I tend to use that just for a, uh, uh, like a music um, server, basically, and a, and, a, and a home entertainment system. Uh, and I've, you know, I find iPads and stuff that I use for that. I don't really do too much coding within the Mac system, so all of my coding is within the Windows system. Um, and yeah, you know, I get frustrated with it. Um, you probably see at the moment if my camera is playing up on the uh, the call as it is for me here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Something between my my video card and the laptop and my GoPro webcam doesn't seem to like each other so it, it kind of paints me out of the uh, the picture every once in a while which is to everybody's advantage i expect uh but um yeah i'd like there to be far more um capability for configuration uh within the within the windows ecosystem for the graphics cards uh and and the wider uh coding capabilities as well um but yeah not really use linux so so can't can't uh, comment on linux uh, antonio what do you guys use Mac, Windows, Linux, what do you guys prefer? Oh my God. I was literally just messaging my my wife because so I started this week, I started a job at Google. Congrats, uh, man. You. Congrats. What are you doing over there? Thank you. I'm going back to my roots. I'm doing uh fraud stuff. So fraud analytics nice. and the trust and safety department. Yeah. Nice. Um, so this was the the first week they gave us I they gave us an option of like a Chromebook, a MacBook Pro, and like some Lenovo and stuff. And everybody I asked, they're like, "Do not don't get a Chromebook. Go with your MacBook." And I because I'm always like I was always like an HP user like or Dell, and uh, I got a MacBook Pro. And I I literally just messaged my wife when I was trying to join this from my HP. I'm like, "Oh my God, I don't want to." I don't want to use HP anymore. Uh, so I was very surprised, but at Google, I think like from what I've heard, like 60 to 70% of like data people and even other like engineers, they're, they're very big on Macs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think they, it's been a week only, but it's, it's won me over that, that, that MacBook Pro. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like uh, I was a lifelong Windows user up until I was about 35 years old. I started working at Bold Commerce and then, switch to the mac and i have not looked back ever since i've been diehard apple mac ever since then it was just very very difficult to uh to do and learn data science on windows i felt everything kept breaking everything kept breaking when i was doing stuff in in windows i get all these weird error messages and whatnot um then once i got to to uh to, to bold uh here in winnipeg working with a couple of really smart people and just they taught me how to use the Mac, it was a quick learning curve, super easy. Uh, you know, I loved working out of the Bash terminal and it just, it was so easy to, to use. I haven't looked back since. Then when I went to Price Industries, they, for whatever reason, wouldn't give me a Mac. So I had to use a Windows. And the first thing I did was immediately get uh, WSL installed. And so I did all of my computation and data science work out of the subsystem, the Linux subsystem, which was a Ubuntu uh, 18 at first and then up to 20 uh, and it was just seamless um, and didn't touch anything in the windows environment monica what about you what, what's what's your what's your go-to device um so i have i, I have a windows I've, I've i'm trying to think if i have even ever done anything with max i would be useless <laughs> i wouldn't even know how to turn it on uh, Yeah. No, I have. I mean, I've heard I've heard mixed reviews, though, because my my husband, he actually um, 
he's working with Google and they gave him a MacBook. And um, so he was, there's like just stuff that's a lot, lot different um, that he's still getting used to. But yeah, me personally, I have no idea about that world. I'm, I'm all about my Androids and my Samsungs and... (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's one thing I like about Apple products is everything seems to connect together. Like everything, my watch, my phone, my TV, my laptops, all of my laptops. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. Matt, good to see you, man. How you doing? And by the way, if anybody has questions, look, we're just getting the conversation warmed up. I was just bouncing around this question, Mac, PC, Linux, just to kind of get the ball rolling on the conversation. But if you have questions, whether you are in the Zoom room, whether you are in the uh, LinkedIn on LinkedIn. I want your questions. I'm happy to, to answer your questions. Uh, Twitch, YouTube, I would love to. Real quick, to a question to the Mac lovers. Um, I used Macs for quite a while, many, many years ago. And then, um, but having bounced around between Windows and Linux and Mac, Mac just seems to be a bit hyper-controlling. What do you say about that? Uh, hyper controlling, like I, I guess I haven't really like, for example, um, I'm doing something that I'd normally do just because I know what I'm doing, and the OS says, No, wait, can't do that yet. You haven't done this, and I'm like, Are you? It, it, it felt like uh, being in grade school, now do this and then do that, and then you can do that. I'm like, I know what I'm doing, let <laughs> quit telling me what to do, yeah. Um, that's uh I haven't felt that. No, I've been I've been happy with that. I guess there's a lot of settings that you have to take care of in uh you know the the settings before things start, you know, getting getting smooth and flowing. Question coming in from LinkedIn Rodney, have I changed my tech setup? Video is dropping in and out. Is that the case? Has my video been dropping in and out, my friends, or has it been pretty good? No. I right, good. Rodney. All right, Rodney might be good. Uh man, right on. Super excited to see everybody else joining in. Mark's in the building, Matt is here. Uh, Jaya, what's going on? And then Mark, other Mark, Mark Bartolo. Man, this is good. I'm happy to see you guys here. Uh, Matt Bratton says he's the only PC user at his company. Oh, that's interesting. Tell us more about that. Do people uh, do people look at you strange as you walk down the office? Uh, Robert is saying price-wise, which one gives you more bang for your buck, Mac or Windows? Um, I just like everything to be connected. I, I'm just a huge Apple fanboy. That you know, price-wise, bang for your buck, probably go for like a Dell or an HP. But uh, just integration into your life so seamlessly, Apple's the the way to go. Um, if anybody, I mean, unless anybody wants to uh, chime in here, let's keep the conversation moving. If anybody has questions, please do let me know, man. I'm super excited to uh, to take any of your questions. Again, big shout out to uh, Tom and Mark Freeman and Matt Blaza who are in the room that helped me uh, up the game for my course. Uh, Matt and Mark, especially, and Vin as well, gave me the most detailed feedback. Uh, Anti as well. Anti's feedback has been crucial. You guys, thank you. This this course that I'm launching is going to be that much better because of you guys' input. So I appreciate that. Jaya, go for it. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh. I have no question yet. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. No problem. What's going on, guys? Questions? Let me know. Let me know. Go for it. Costeb. Oh, you are muted, my friend. Make sure you unmute yourself there. I am muted. Um... Quote of 2020, right? You're muted. Um, so I guess with the Windows Mac question, I mean, the two two points is what's better price-wise and do you find yourself locked in? I've only been on Mac for like two months now 
The only points where I felt locked in with a Mac is that in order to install a piece of software that I want, that I just use, like say, if I want to Jira for, for my Mac itself, as opposed to using the web interface, right? I needed to have a Apple account to install that stuff. I don't need that with a Windows machine and I sure don't need that with a Linux machine, right? So that bit of the ecosystem is pretty tied up, Tom, kind of to, to answer your question in a bit. But other than that, in terms of actually doing the things that I want to do from a data science perspective or a machine learning perspective, I haven't found it restrictive. In terms of, uh, I guess, in terms of the question in the chat about price-wise, Rob, I guess it really depends what you want, right? And what your business is set up to do. At the end of the day, right now, I'm working at a machine learning company where all we do is on the cloud. It's all cloud-delivered solutions, right? So a Mac just becomes this out-of-the-box managed solution with very low IT overheads. On the other hand, previously, I was working at a company where we were more engineering-oriented, so everything was going on to robots. And frankly, we needed CAD software, and we don't have the quality of CAD software on Mac and Linux that we do on Windows. Like, you're just not going to see you know, mechanical design software, electrical design software come to quite that level yet. Just, there's just no one putting that investment into doing that on Mac or Linux. And that's where it just becomes a no-brainer that, yeah, Windows wins for those applications. So yeah, it comes down to what you need. Thank you so much, Kosev. A lot of great comments coming in. Man, we kicked off a pretty strong conversation on this uh, for like the first half an hour, just talking about Mac, Windows, or Linux. Uh, Matt Bratton says he was given the Mac at the start, couldn't use Power Query without setting up parallels, ended up directing 95% of resources to the parallels. Machines finally called it quits. He hated it. Kaylin says, I love the smoothness and connectivity of the Mac. And also, I presume my voice, uh, but Windows PC is easier to use when it comes to software compatibility. Uh, Awesome. Thank you. We're going to go ahead and drop this uh, topic. Mark, go for it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I had a pretty fun week at work. We had a uh, kind of a mini hackathon. So uh, low, low kind of pressure uh, work, um, just trying to finish a project in a week. Essentially, I think if you remember a while back, I talked about how I want to like understand kind of like churn within our company and all these different components. Um, so I used this hackathon to do it. And my question is just like, how do you handle for data projects that are just complete flops that just don't go the way you expect it? Um, you know, I, essentially, um, I think out of this week, I, I didn't build anything. I was dealing, basically troubleshooting so many things. And now the, my, my deliverable is like, here's a landscape of all the things that are messed up. This is what we need to do to fix it. And then we can unlock this value here, but we need to do all these other things first. Um, so I have that component, but I'm curious how others handle, like you push for an idea or you have this project that everyone's super excited about. And then once you start, it's just roadblock after roadblock and it's just a complete flop for, for what it is. I, I mean, I've had this happen, definitely, but I just try to reframe it. Like instead of thinking of it as binary win or lose, I think of it as, okay, we have uncovered opportunities for us to do something to make it easier for us to unlock value somehow, some way, right? So all these like roadblocks and barriers, this is this is great because you probably wouldn't have came across these roadblocks and barriers had you not attempted this project. And who knows the implications further downstream of you taking care of these roadblocks and barriers? Like it could it could help you unlock a lot of other stuff for for the organization. Um, 
yeah, I had to, I've had to give presentations for like, yeah, I've spent weeks on this thing and I can't do it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I would love to hear from uh, Tom on this. And then from Tom, let's go to uh, Antonio. So Harpreet, I know you'll love this thought from Dave and Andy tracer bullet. And if I may use some bad language, I'll go Cajun mode here. I love the term shitty tracer bullet, meaning promise that I, you know, I get something that I can just release. I say, I promise what I'm about to show you is shitty, but it will get better. It can't get any worse than this. But basically you start end to end mark and then you thicken it over time. That way, you know, you've at least kind of got the thread of what you've got to get going. Uh, that's a good, I actually just read the chapter on tracer bullets and uh, in the, in the book, uh, the Pro- pragmatic programmer. So I, and I really love that one, I think, but that's a good call out using fake data. So like I have the data, essentially like they're in different silos and the challenge is bringing them in together to one source. And so I think one way I can kind of approach this, just like pull in all the fake data or not pull, just pull in all the data to put into Excel sheet and say like, this is what it looked like if we brought it together. So I think that's a really great call out. But another thing, and you kind of prompted me, I put it in the chat, start with really ridiculously small, simple, fake toy data sets. That's another way to test your end-to-end, at least on your data flow. And it's even easy to create fake dirty data and fake noise. And But then that way, you're not wading through the complications of our gargantuan data set that's hard to visualize, but you've learned to replicate the same kind of issues you will see, but at a toy scale. No, that's, that's a, that's a great call out. So I think, uh, you know, our, our, our hackathon ended this week, I'll probably spend this weekend uh, kind of pulling in a little quick mock. Um, I guess like this wouldn't necessarily be a, a tracer bullet. It'll probably be the, in the chapter of the prototype. Whereas like this is what it looks like and you scrap it afterwards, but it gives a start. I know Greg is a fan of uh, scrappy, scrappy solutions. Let's go to Antonio. Then Greg, if you got any insight or Monica after that, if you guys got any insights, we can go Antonio, Monica, Greg. And then by the way, uh, if anybody has questions, go ahead and let me know right there in the chat, wherever it is you are, I will add your question to the queue. Uh, after Mark's question, we got a question from uh, coming in from LinkedIn, from Maged. Um, We'll see if we're going to answer that question or not. But uh, if anybody else has questions, let me know. Antonio, go for it. So first I'll say what Tom said. Uh, <laughs> I think because Mikiko's not here, so uh, it's going to be what Tom said. But I think, yeah, I think it's very important to start that proof of concept, develop it as small as you can and see, see what it takes you to. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying like this project looks like it's going to take a lot more time than value is going to bring me. You know, I think it's very underestimated, but I used to kind of like push for those things. Like, oh, I said, I'm going to do machine learning or whatever and not have to go through with it, you know? And sometimes the better thing is saying, this is going to be a lot of wasted time, our resources, and I don't, I don't see it going anywhere, you know? So sometimes having to, you know, like take a step back to move to forward um, and really evaluate it. If you're asking the, the right question, I know a lot of times when you reframe the question that you're trying to solve for, maybe something else will open up, right? So then trying to brute force it and trying to like different techniques. So I don't know exactly, right, what your project is, but um, think about how, why it's not going, you know, if you can ask the question slightly different or maybe group, if you have a multi-classification problem, maybe can I narrow this down into a binary classification, right? 
just an example. Or if I can't do any supervised, can I start with unsupervised learning? So just trying to uh, re reframe it and look at it from a different angle that might help you. Again, that depends on like what your situation is. Yeah, just just to give context, I wish I, I wish I was dealing with an ML problem, but it's, it's literally data access. Um, <laughs> it's, we have four silos. I'm trying to understand it. We have a uh, customer health data. So our product data, um, kind of like CS and sales data, bring that all together, but they live in like Syndesk and Salesforce and database and, and BigQuery. And so like bringing that all together into one source um, is interesting. And I think the key linchpin I basically dealt with, like I have all these tables, but like um, none of them have organization ID. And so I'm trying to figure out how to get the organization ID to merge across things. Is, it's been the linchpin for me for this week. Um, but going back to your point, like simplifying is like, all right, maybe I don't bring in these four tables. The low hanging fruit is these two tables. And that's like a step further than before. Right. And show them, show them what you can do. Be like, hey, you know, and then maybe you you bring some of it manually. That's what I used to do because we used to work across different organizations. You bring it in manual and be like, guys, this is what's possible if we have this data right. But as you can see, you guys are not labeling it correctly. If you want what I've built for you here as a prototype, start labeling the data for me. This is how you're going to do it. And what I would do with the non-technical teams, I would say, I would try to make it as simple as they can. If I have to be like, just do this in Google Sheets. You guys like your Excel, you like Google Sheets. So I would do a drop down. Every time you do this row, this is what you're going to label it as. And maybe right now it's not possible, but maybe in a month or two or three months, because if you guys do this correctly, this is what we can do. So kind of motivate them, inspire them. And ultimately it's on them, right? Because you can build the best prototype, but if people are not going to take the time to look at it a long-term and give you good data, then I think it's just going to be more, more headaches for you long-term because then you're going to have to keep fixing it, you know? So teach them how to fish and then you help them out. Definitely. Just a quick interjection, Mark. I've always seen the data frame tools like pandas and the, the pandas lookalikes as being the great integrators. Are they not giving you help here? Um, no, unfortunately, because it's, it's less like the, it's less the, uh, the data itself. It's more so the systems. And so like give you a great example is like the Zendesk. We, we pull our data into the database. We use the Zendesk API. But for the use case, it was for like, uh, like creating tickets, but they never brought in the organization field. So I'm going to have to go into the code base and like, update the API call to bring in that data. So it's almost like the data engineering side of like, all right, I need to create a call for API, put that in our database and then move that to BigQuery. Um, And then for like Salesforce, um, we have Fivetran for that, which is really great. But like, there's like various permissions for the account that are like missing. So I have to like go scramble and get the permissions right to get it in. So it's like more bureaucratic kind of things and like operational things if i had the data <laughs> it was just that would be an easy merge thing pandas or even just bigquery kind of kind of thing it's more so access <laughs> well and i'm wondering too i'm hurting cats <laughs> yeah yeah i get it when i was learning power bi a while back it seemed like it was a fascinating integrator of data streams too is that a possibility for you um I think BigQuery is probably going to be the more, more, because I'm, I'm trying to go towards like the lake house format. I'm trying to push my company towards that where, you know, you, you have the ELT kind of format, extract load and do your transformations within BigQuery with SQL. Um, 
But yeah, currently everything kind of goes into BigQuery and we kind of combine all the data into like curated views, like a data mart from there. What do you, what do you call oh, I'm just, just, just going to make a quick joke. Like, what do you call the person that operates a canoe? Is there a name for that? Because because you're going to need a data canoe to get from your data lake house to the data shore to deliver data value. Uh, so build them data canoes. Uh, sorry, go for it, Antonio. And then uh, Monica, I know you're, uh, you, you were unmuted, so I was wondering if you had any insights here as well. Uh, definitely go for it. But yeah, go for it, Antonio. Also, yeah, I just want to further say, context, okay. context that might be helpful. I'm in a startup. So like a lot of fractured things, we all figure out and be scrappy as we go. And we're slowly combining things together. So that's that's another piece of information. I just wanted to add to like people who are listening on LinkedIn or want to be like in this in the data field, like what Mark is describing, I think it's honestly like most like 60% of the job is like he's saying, if you have the data, oh, then I will do it. But the problem is how do you get the data all in one place, right? It's not like you go on Kaggle and you download it. So a lot of the data science, data analysts, whatever you want to call it, job is the problem is getting the people to agree on the same problem and solving it and bringing all the data together. And so if you like like doing all the cool stuff, you definitely have to be okay with all this like dirty work. And I always say that like 80% of the problems I have at work is not like technology or data related. It's always comes down to people. Once you get people to agree on something, usually the, the data part we can figure out, but it's, <laughs> it's getting like, five or six different groups and 30 different people across the organization to say, oh yeah, let's, this is what we're going to do exactly. So just wanted to add that. Uh, Monica, did you want to chime in? We'll go Monica Costa, but are you still here? Yes, you are. And then we'll go to Greg after that. I just love that. If I have the data, I've been there so many times, um, but very, very common to have, you know, all of these different uh, departments that you have to gather together and, and figure things out. One thing that I've learned, though, it's really easy to get sucked into like all of the problems and all of the what ifs and I can't do this and I can't do this. Try to always come with like a solution of what you can do. Or if we did this, then we'll be able to accomplish X, Y, Z. Um, But everybody else, you know, the low hanging fruit, the POPs, all of that really, really great advice. But just focus on presenting presenting a solution rather than being the Debbie Downer, I guess. <laughs> definitely. No, I, I definitely present it as, as a negative, but uh, but this, like, like I said, it's all part of the job. I think the only thing is like, typically I just want to have a week to do this. It'd be like a long-term project, but if it was a hackathon week. I was like, yeah, I could totally try to build the ML model for fun in a week. And like naive me, I knew, I knew when I said that, like that wouldn't be the case, but um, you know, I thought, oh yeah, the data is already there. No. Yeah, to Monica's point, like there's, you know, the classic military line, either lead, follow, or get out of the way. Don't be the person who doesn't want to lead, doesn't want to follow, doesn't want to get out of the way. They want to tell you why the thing's not going to work. So that's the person that you don't want to be. <laughs> uh, any follow points on that, Monica? Otherwise, we can go to uh, Costa, but then after Costa, Greg. No, I love that explanation, though. Yeah, I, look, I totally, um, I totally agree with that. Like, get out of the way if you if you're not presenting part of the solution, right? Um, but at the same time, there's always value in being very honest with like either clients or internal to your company when, hey, if it's if it's really, really, really stuck up and if you're if you're up the wrong creek, uh, you got to be really upfront and honest with that. Otherwise, you end up spending months and months, you know, just working on this stuff and just patching stuff up and it's not going to be a scalable solution. Right. Um, but this kind of I mean, one of the things that Antonio touched on is is more 
selling that story of okay, if I can, um, if I can take this segment of it and prove this business value, right? You need to. You can convince a company to then go and invest more into bringing that their data to a point where they can um, monetize it better. Um, and I think where I'm seeing that really start to scratch the surface here is more on the manufacturing side of things. Now, for for the last like 20 years, right? And in the last 10 years, what we've noticed is there was this entire change in design practices where design for manufacture became like the key words. So you'd manufacture a physical product so that it can be um, so that it can be assembled, disassembled, repaired really easily. What we're slowly moving to is very much, um, and we're just starting on it, is design for data science, right? So what if I had to look at my real-world physical product and I had to be able to detect uh, problems with it? I had to deal with the supply chain of it. I had to deal with assembly lines. Now, a lot of that stuff is still very manual right now, and you need the data in a cohesive manner. You need the data acquisition with the right modalities, whether it's visual, whether it's uh, you know numerical data coming through. You need to think about how you store and use that data through a manufacturing process. So we're starting to see more and more companies become aware while they're trying to integrate uh, data science into their manufacturing processes that their current designs, like for example, if you have a physical product that is indistinguishable from uh, something else that sits on it, and that's a super critical component, uh, there's no way that you can visually detect that. Uh, how else could you do it? So you need to start designing in a manner that it becomes easier for data science to slip into your stream and really optimize your manufacturing, right? So this design for manufacturing is kind of designed for data science is, is the new thing, I think, where we're moving towards. I, I think you're so spot on because I, I think you basically described my job for the past seven months is like my, my OKR was like improved data access throughout the whole entire organization. Um, which like I was able to deliver on, which is super hyped about. And there's now I'm just doing extra stuff around that. But like a key thing was like a lot of training different parts of the company, especially engineering of like, how do we get logs? How do we structure logs? You know, we have a NoSQL database. So it's very nested and denormalized. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of trickiness that we have to, to go through to massage the data into a useful way and serve it to the right people. And so, yeah, it's totally just, uh, like I, I told Tom earlier, wrangling cats. That's what it feels like. I'm just herding cats all day. <laughs> but slowly I'm, I'm training folks around. I'm like, this is why this structure and this format's really important. So I think that's a really cool analogy with the, like the design thinking, not design thinking, but the, like manufacturing design, similar for data. Uh, go for it, Greg. After Greg, we'll go to Tom. Uh, I just wanted to add a little bit of uh project management aspect to it because you know it, it, everybody here already gave some some great pointers at the end of the day to me it's about the communication right driving visibility to your stakeholders i think most of the time when we see roadblocks because i'm trying to remember what you said earlier is that you come after, into you walk into roadblocks after roadblocks after roadblocks and the biggest disappointment to a project manager is uh, not being able to, uh, I guess, plan for time when it comes to roadblocks and not creating that visibility to stakeholders because stakeholders, what they want, they want to make sure they hear what, you know, they know they are in the know of how things are evolving. So it comes down to one thing, communication. 
And communication in the project starts at the time where you've done all the scoping that you can do and you lay out the plan, you beef it up with some sort of, I guess, um, room for error, room for trials, room for discovery. And also you lay down the plan for, not plan, but you lay out the risk that is included inside of that project too, because they, they want to know, okay, uh, if I engage in this activity, those are the potential uh, things that I may discover. This is the risk that I may incur. And this is the time that I'm estimating it will take. And as I go through it, uh, I will let you know when things happen, right? And why and what I will do to correct them. And then I agree, hopefully with everybody here, that with the mention of POCs. So proof of concepts are definitely the best approach where you start small and then you, 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 know, you deliver in a phased uh, approach. Uh, never go, go big on those things, especially if these innovations, they are new, which means you are going to discover new things that you didn't plan for. And, and that's the nature of a project, right? So any stakeholder who doesn't understand that you will come across roadblocks isn't the best stakeholder to work with because uh, by nature, especially innovative projects by nature gets blockage. It's the continuing of visibility, communication, and collaboration that gets you to the next steps. So uh, uh, that's pretty much what I wanted to add from a project management perspective. That's all so awesome feedback. And I'm also like super happy that like, this is just a hackathon. So thankfully there's like no major deliverable tied to it or, or major stakeholder. So if this was like a project project, oh, I'll be freaking out right now. <laughs> But you got, I mean, if it was a project project and you actually failed, it wouldn't be the end of the world, right? Like, I'm sure your no. coworkers would be understanding. They'd be like, hey, man, at least you figured this out, this out, this out. So, you know, don't, don't catastrophize failures again. Flip it, flip it from negative to positive. Uh, Tom. 100%. Good call out. Yeah. yeah. Real quick, Mark. So, um, Russell and I were kind of bouncing around this in the chat, but it, it seems like you need to find some common format that all data sources could go to so that you could then draw from that format. Is that, is that right? It's been a six-month conversation I've had and slowly chipping away to make that happen. I completely agree. So um, just this thing, in my experience, if you think about, uh, we can call it hash tables, JSON objects, NoSQL, they're all kind of same thing, dictionaries. In my experience, you if you plan those out carefully and you, you make them a little more detailed and ugly than they need to be, you can kind of prepare for normalization with those. And it seems like everything is willing to go to something like JSON. So maybe that's your bridge, like in a NoSQL sense, but where you're actually preparing unique identifiers such you're preparing keys so that once you get there, I mean, keys that might be in a sequel so that as you're building that neutral, everything can go to it type data structure, then in the final step, that can be, that can go anywhere else from there. I'm just yeah. thinking out loud. Another, another quirk, another, another quirks. I'm just curious because I think you might find this interesting is that we use proto buffers, which is like a really strange 
use of data. Um, and so like the ha- that forces you to use keys for things. Um, but because they have this NoSQL structure, we have these keys, but then like we'll also have keys like nested within values as well. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, you know, again, startup there, I think there were like decisions made um, for, for a much larger scale company type of data structure. And so now and I just, as the, and it was, they didn't have data scientists back then or data analysts. So I think now like coming in from this data perspective, it works really well for web apps. Like it's super strong for web apps, but for analytics, I'm like tackling the technical debt to, to, to make it, make it work. And we're slowly getting there. But I completely agree. Getting like a, a unified kind of data structure, that's uh, that's kind of so key. And that's that's uh, um, that's why I really love uh, I'm bl- Databricks. Databricks, their uh, lakehouse format. Uh, I've been really falling in love with that because I think it really solves a lot of the kind of issues uh, that that we face. What's a protocol buffer? Uh, break that down real quick. A proto buffer, and then we'll go to Matt uh, Matt Blas after that. Yeah, let me let me try my best way to to describe it. If someone else knows how to describe it, totally go for it. Cause that's I don't touch it as much, but essentially proto buffers, from my understanding, is like this data structure that was made out of Google. Um, and it's it's supposed to be a, a way that's um scalable um and a really fast kind of data structure um for for your data. And the way it works is that you kind of set forth um, like your keys and the structures of the day, you call it out where you basically create like whole mappings of it before you fill it in with data. Um, and you create like these objects with that. And then through those objects, you fill it in with data. And so you'll, you'll create the mappings and then you run a compiler to like create this auto-generated report. And then from there, you fill it in with data within your database. Uh, it's beyond me. I'm yeah. still learning. Uh, Matt go for it. Yeah, Mark, could you tell me more about what you were doing with Databricks? The was it proto buffer? Um, no, so I, I was. Uh, we don't use Databricks, but it's more so Databricks is the first one to really come out with the whole uh, lakehouse paradigm, and they have this blog where they detail what, like, where the ten facets of like using a lakehouse. And so Databricks, oh. you can build a lakehouse with it, but you can use other different um, different uh, kind of vendors as well. And so the idea essentially is that, like, with data lakes, um, they became like data swamps because all your data is there. It was hard to understand what was happening. And then with data warehouses, they were just kind of like too structured and hard to use um, for like the different types of data that's that's kind of proliferating now. And so with the push now with cloud computing, essentially uh, costs uh, for storage dropped dramatically and the speed also increased substantially. And so this lake house format where it kind of brings the best worlds of a lake uh, data lake and a data warehouse together in one format. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to learn more about data, like Databricks and it's been a big curve. Yeah. I, so. I haven't used Databricks before. It's more so like they're, they're the ones that came up with the, the framework um, through their blog. Okay. I'll check it out. Thank you. Right on. Big shout out. We got Matt Bratton in the house. Matt, good to see you. Matt is the purveyor of amazing analytics shirts. If you see me rock my sequel, uh, select from uh shirt, that's, that's uh uh, Matt's doing right there. He's also got this push button, get analytics. I love that. Matt, drop a link to uh, to your shirts right here in the uh, in the chat. Big shout out. Also, Matt, you crushed and uh, surpassed 5K uh, 
on LinkedIn. That's huge. Um, also, you know, big shout out to Eric Sims past that 10 K mark. Um, all right, let's go to a question from LinkedIn. All right. So we got a question from LinkedIn coming from, um, from Magid. He's asking, what should I do to make my master application solid for master in data science, specifically if my undergrad was in my S, which is a business degree, any tips? Um, so we're going to have to make a lot of assumptions here um, for the purposes of this conversation. Let's just assume that you are in North America applying to North American schools. Um, if, for what it's worth, let me just give you a little bit of history of Harpreet Sohota. So I graduated with my undergrad from Cal State Fullerton at like... I studied economics and math, and my GPA was like barely enough to get a degree, like a 2.2, literally. It was like a 2.2 GPA. Somehow, because of uh, California's uh, really high bar for educators, I became a uh, teacher of mathematics somehow. Uh, I took the, there's this series of exams I had to take to become a math teacher, but I did well on those. And then I wanted to get back into grad school. I was like, you know what? Um, Teaching is cool, but it's not really going to get me where I want to go. I should become an actuary because then I'll make a lot of money. Um, so I started applying for schools. No graduate program would accept me because of my GPA. So I had to go to UC Davis and uh, UC Davis wouldn't even let me in as like, you know, a bachelor student at first. I had to take course after course um, as a, what was called graduate student at large. And so I took pretty much every undergraduate statistics course I could at UC Davis and maintained like a 3.7 GPA during that time. Then I took the GRE and I scored like in the 90th percentile for math and then just wrote a killer uh, essay. And I got into a bunch of different grad programs. So that being said, if my dumbass could get into grad school, uh, so can you. So if you are going for an app, you know, most programs will have a pre-master's program right? And that pre-master's program is designed for you to catch up on some foundational courses that are going to be necessary for your success in further graduate courses. You can either do that on your own at a local community college or go through the university's formal grad program. But um, again, we're making a lot of assumptions here that you are in the U.S. or North America, applying North American schools. So if that's the case, hopefully your GPA wasn't as low as mine. In undergrad, and uh, you know, if you got if if your program requires a GRE, uh, just make sure you crush the D GRE. Do a couple of side projects. Uh, actually, get in touch with some instructors. Um, so I made it a point to reach out to. So I applied to a bunch of different schools, and I made sure I reached out to the head of every single department, sent a quick email, and just asked like, "Hey, what does your ideal graduate student look like? Like, what do you want? Like, what what kind of students do you want in your program? Right? So Try that route as well. Look up the schools that you really want to go to, find the department heads, send them emails, you know, find the subhead or whatever they're called and send them emails and just get a get an idea of, you know, hey, what, in your opinion, what does it take for a graduate student to succeed in this program at this university? Um, Tom, I saw you had your hand up. So if you want to share some advice, definitely go for it. I want to rehear the question. Was it, I, I thought he was almost asking, oh, what should he study in his master's program? No, he wants to... His master's research. No, no. What should I do to make my master application solid for master's in data science? Because my undergraduate was in MIS, which was a business degree. Yeah, I think you were hitting on all the cylinders there, Harper. Mark, good. go for it. Uh, yeah, so I 
Um, you know, at the end of the day, the way I view applications, especially to graduate school, it's a negotiation. You're trying to negotiate with the, your counterpart that, like, I have this value that you want to bring into this school, um, to this program, especially for competitive programs. So for me, like, um, I, I'm still shocked that I got into Stanford for, for my master's. Um, because similar to you, like it was a master's in science program. My science GPA was like a 2.3. My overall GPA was barely a 3.0. My background was sociology. Um, and so essentially what I did was, um, you know, I worked really hard ahead of time to, to get the, uh, the personal statement down, um, as well. And also when I did the GRE, like wherever the average was, I was like 1% above the average. So not stellar at all, um, for these things. But uh, through that, um, the one key thing which I think got me in was like, is there anything else you want to tell us? That, that thing can be gold for um, your kind of application because what I essentially did was I called out my flaws and owned the narrative around it so they couldn't. And I said like, these are my flaws and this is why they're huge shrinks. So I basically said, hey, my grades sucked. <laughs> Here were the situations around that and the lessons I learned. And because I went through these lessons, um, I essentially talked about like imposter syndrome and how I like avoided studying because I did leadership things uh, as a way to fill this void of like completely failing in school over and over again. Right. And how that created this cycle of like, oh, I didn't do well in school. I'm gonna take on more leadership opportunities, which prevents me from doing good in school and created the cycle. Um, and so essentially <laughs> I, I called that out and I said, Hey, research was the first time I felt like a good student and it broke that cycle. And this program is a research program, which aligns with my passion. And because I went through these lessons, I won't do it again. And imagine me taking all my leadership experiences, putting all concerted effort into this program. I would be a huge asset that you will be kind of wild for you to miss out on. Right. So I took the main weakness of my application and just highlighted it as a strength. Um, I'm happy to share that, that personal statement if, with anyone. Um, I share it to a whole bunch of people all the time. I'm, I'm happy to make it more public if you want an example of how to, to navigate that kind of tough conversation. But that was the key thing that really uh, kind of put my application over the edge. Yeah, absolutely love that. Uh, that's what it's called, personal statement. That's the graduate school essay. But yes. Yeah, what is so awesome what you said reminded me of like that last rap battle from eight mile where Eminem is just like listing out all his flaws and like all right now tell me something about myself i don't know uh oh i love that absolutely man Antonio, i need, I need to say something real quick antonio yeah, yeah. that we need to call you what mark said also applies in the real world you will not run away from making mistakes but there is power in owning up to your mistake explaining what you've learned and what you will do going forward Keep that for the rest of your career. You'll yep. do well. Yep. Very good. Thank you so much, Greg. Appreciate that. that was, yeah, great, great advice. Antonio, go for it. Uh, so when I was applying for graduate school, um, I noticed the one thing that the schools really want to see, and I, Harpre, you touched upon that, is taking a couple of classes from their school. So like I had solid grades. I had a, like really good GPA and everything. And I applied to, I think, Georgia Tech. And just, they just denied me. And I'm like, okay, what do I have to do? And they're like, well, you know, if you could take these, there's this uh, micromasters on edX, right? and you, you take these couple of classes, 
I took those couple classes. It was like so much easier than what I had done in my undergraduate, but I didn't care because that's what they cared about. And as soon as you, uh, as soon as you do their classes you and you do good, you like, you get in like an A or a B, uh, they just kind of like, I guess to them, it proves like, okay, this person is up to, up to par with this degree. Um, for the record, I didn't end up going to take to, to Georgia tech because once I took the classes, I'm like, Oh, this is not for me. So that could all also be a thing where you take the classes and you're like, Oh, maybe this wasn't the, the thing I should have been like aiming for. Uh, but I know like Michigan has a lot of data science programs. So if you're looking like Michigan school, right, maybe you can do that on Coursera or Georgia tech has most schools now have some kind of online programs that you can, you can start with. So definitely, definitely go for that. Thank you very much, Antonio. And yeah, just for the record, I don't think you need a graduate degree to go to, to get a job in data science. Like anybody can learn it from all these massively open online courses, do projects. You can get a job without a graduate degree. Uh, that being said, like I looked at the guy's profile you're, and you said in uh, LinkedIn here that you're trying to get to Canada and you're right now in Egypt. So yeah, definitely if you're trying to, you know, get a better life for yourself in a different country, then sometimes going to school is the route to do that. Um, that being said, man, let's go to uh, Matt Diamond. Matt, whether you got another question or if you've got, yeah, no, uh, I, yeah, I just want to pick back up on that. Continue the the thread. What it, everybody here has advanced degrees in data science or something of the data science ilk. What did you learn in that program that you would not have gotten through equivalent tangential data science experience? Like an entry level quote unquote data science role. What what's the value add of a of a grad program? In essence, I feel like I've learned far more outside of grad school than I did while I was in grad school. Um, it, but if anything, it forced me to learn the fundamentals at a very, very deep level. And it taught me how to do research. Um, so th those are two things. I mean, you can still do that on your own. You just you have to be sufficiently motivated to do that. Um, but it helps have a rigorous structure and program like in place. Um, I'm going to turn it to the rest of the audience. So let's go to a Coast Hub. And then after Coast Hub, let's go to uh, uh, Mark Freeman. And just a shout out, Ben Taylor's in the building. Yeah. So, I mean, I think fundamentally, like I finished my master's degree just over two years ago now. So I'm still pretty fresh out of the grad program system. Um, but what I was looking at, and I'm, I'm from Australia, so I'm not situated in Canada. I'm not situated in USA where I have access to, you know, um, all of those things. So I needed to do GRE before I could apply to any American universities. I ended up going to a British university instead because by the time I finish a GRE, go to an American university for a couple of years, finish that off, I'll be two, three years down the track in my career, right? What I basically got down to was I spent a bunch of time learning whatever I could on my own and got to that point where I needed that bit of guidance, right? And you got to be really self-aware about, okay, this is what I can teach myself. And then this is the thing that I'm struggling to learn for myself. And that's where, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a, a graduate degree could light a fire under you, right? And get some real guidance from people who've done stuff like that before to really give you that support. So the main things is, does it align with exactly what you want to learn? Like I, um, I managed to get access to, uh, you know, earth observation data and expertise in, you know, robotics and things like that, that I wouldn't have had within my day job and within my just Googling for data sets. So those are things that aligned with my background in robotics anyway. So I needed that. For, and that was the reason why I needed a master's program um, because those are things that you don't have access to. So when you're looking at a master's program, 
figure out what's your timeline. Do you need a two, three-year graduate program or do you need something that's just going to teach you the fundamentals in a year, year and a half? A lot of British universities and European universities, they're moving to a year program because you learn the fundamentals and the rest of it, you guys are right. You learn way more on the job, right? So figure out what are those research groups that you're working with? Is that going to add value to where you want to focus as a data scientist? There's data science problems all over the place. Focus yourself and figure out exactly which bits are going to add value to you and really consider the cost, really consider the time because graduate degrees, like I, I know the status of my bank account, what, what a master's degree did to that over the span of just a year, right? So yeah. think really hard about how much time and money you're investing. Yeah. I've, I've always come to that, the, that same conclusion that I, I don't know if the opportunity cost it outweighs the, the tuition or the, or the vice versa. The opportunity cost would be greater than the tuition and the time and energy would go into a grad program. So I, I have not gone, admittedly, but I'm starting to reconsider that. And that, that's, I just want to get thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, like for me on that front, I, I, like, I took a very calculated approach to this. I, I listed like some 80 or 90 universities across the world, some 140 odd courses. And really figured out which course is going to give me the information that I couldn't learn for myself in the shortest period of time for the lowest amount of money that I can give it, right? So I can do as like just gain as much out of it. I, I I've seen a bunch of comments around this on like the Facebook subtle engineering traits page, and a couple of people on there giving some great advice on make sure that let's say you're going to pay forty thousand US dollars for a master's program. I don't know what the cost is in the US, but let's say it's forty thousand, right? About- Try to make sure that your career growth potential within a couple of years of finishing that master's, your salary gap should increase by the cost. That you should be able to recover that cost. It's yeah. an investment in you to treat it as an investment, right? Yeah. Absolute knowledge bombs. Thank you so much, Kosub. Let's go to Mark. Then after Mark, Jaya, and Matt. Uh, great discussion kicked off by Maggie. Thank you so much. And then carried on by Matt. I appreciate that. But Mark, go for it. I was going to say, uh, I'll let others speak first because I've already talked a lot. So I would love to hear from others having spoken. Yeah, let's go to Jaya, then Matt, and then back to Mark. So Jaya, go for it. Yeah, so um, my background is in business. I do not have CS background or data science background, but I went to grad school. I took business classes and so forth. And I mean, I was thinking whether to go to grad school for data science, but thinking about how much it costs, it's a lot. So I want to make sure that whatever money I'm investing in grad school for data science, it should it should mean something to me. So before doing that, uh, I I took classes in Udacity and Coursera and all that classes and to see whether it's something I want because number one, I don't have a Python background. So I took classes there and I taught myself how to program Python, R and all that stuff. So take those classes because the investment is slightly smaller than grad school, I feel. So get a feel for it and you know and uh, see if this is something you really want to do. Do one course and do another one, then another one and just see. I mean, uh, I mean, and I, I can I the reason why I'm doing data is because every in any organization that you go to, data is like like the thing in every organization and and you have to know. So that's why I want to know how how Python works, how R works, and how data works in all the situation. And I find taking classes in all these different MOOCs is super helpful. And and then you can think about whether you really want to do a, a, a master's or a PhD in it. But I, I find these MOOCs are super, super awesome because in short time, you can get a lot of uh, learning done 
pretty quick and fast. And then you can still get a job and still get the same pay, whether you're master's or not. But yeah, having a master's is, 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 is it's a structured program. You follow through some courses step by step and, you know, you do the research part of it or a capstone project either way. So, but that's my take. Thank you very much, Aya. Matt, let's go to Matt. And then after uh, you, will go to Mark. Yeah, I feel like it's it's all just a big analytical problem, right? To to approach, I I try to think of it very pragmatic. So what what are my goals? What am I trying to accomplish? And what is it worth to try to get there faster? If this path, a master's, is going to help me get there faster, uh, then maybe it's worth it. And so I, when I was thinking about master's programs, uh, I did a lot of research. I came up with my goals, decided what it was that I wanted to achieve. And then I got into my top pick and I got to talk into to alumni. And, and one of the things that I kept coming back to was, man, this is expensive. And the feedback I got from some folks was, look, if the cost is too much, either your goals are too low or you shouldn't be doing it. That's it. So either reevaluate your goals and make it make sense or just don't do it. Go a different route. Maybe it's not for you. And so I had to take a step back and realize a lot of the visualization I was doing. It's like, yeah, sure, I had goals, but I was still picturing myself at the end of this program, 130 grand in debt without a job or an equivalent job to where I was. I wasn't picturing myself at that next level with what I could achieve by achieving this thing, right? So building that into your process and having these goals and, and using it to help you get to somewhere else, that it's got to make sense. Now, if there's like personal development, I can't help you there. If there's all these other softer reasons, that's for you to decide. But from a financial perspective, you should be able to do the math, to figure out what is your time worth? What is this investment really worth? And, and is it something that you want to pursue? Um, kind of to some of the earlier topics talking about what are, what are programs looking for? Look, they're, they're going to be most protective of their asset, which is their alumni. And then you will become their alumni by, by becoming one of their cohorts. So the, the question was asked, like, what did you get from a program that you couldn't have got out in the real world? Well, it sounds cheesy, but the reality is the network, the people that I sat with side by side from all over the world, from all different backgrounds with anywhere from 10 years to two years of experience who shared their stories, shared their, their experiences, added their two cents that are completely different from what anything I would have experienced elsewhere. That's the value. That was the, the experience that I thought made it all worth it was. You come away with all these new ideas, perspectives, and connections, and then you step out, and now you're part of this alumni network, and there's just tremendous value in that. So that's all stuff that you got to bake into the equation. But anyway, that's my two cents. Thank you very much, Matt. Oh. Appreciate that. Let's go to uh, let's go to Mark, and then uh, somebody was just talking. I don't know who that was, um, but let's hear from Mark, and then uh, I guess after Mark, we'll move on. I got a question coming in from uh, LinkedIn, um, but whoever that was that wanted to say something, just raise your hand, and I'll. Um, just building real quick on the the network component, the network's really huge. So the uh, I've talked to him here before about how I tried starting a a company, and my two co-founders were my classmates from from grad school, and we liked working with each other so much. We're like, for the next time we do something, like we'll totally be co-founders again. So um, I wouldn't have got that without like kind of having that networking component. But um, the kind of perspective I wanted to bring was my program was analytical because it was very research focused. But the reason I went to my program was to help me get into med school, um, not to go get a career in data science. It just so happened that my, my master's was integral for me breaking into data science. And the reason was, it wasn't for my statistical skills. 
or my technical skills, I built up domain knowledge that very few people had in healthcare. Um, let me phrase that. A lot of people have it, but it's a harder to find skill um, than, than others. Um, and so when I was hired for my first data science job, they're like, yeah, you kind of suck at technical stuff right now. You can train up on that. But like, you know how to work through kind of healthcare research in a way that that's a skill set that's highly valued. So another component is like, all right, um, beyond just like an analytics program, is there a domain that you're really passionate about? that has a analytics piece to it. And so I forced my program to be analytics. I went to my director, I said, hey, you know, I want to take every single stats class. Can we restructure the requirements? I negotiated with my, my director, essentially. Always negotiate, that's another component. But saying like, hey, I want to take these courses and statistics, that's how it aligns with the program. And so I was able to take every single like simulation, modeling and stats course I can get into. Um, which ultimately ended up helping made me realize actually I love data science uh, through that. And the reason why I did that is because my background in undergrad was qualitative research. So I wanted to learn quantitative research to do mixed methods and as a, as a physician. And so it just, just didn't end up that way. So I think something that's really useful is like actually getting domain and subject matter expertise in a subject can go a really long way to kind of get your foot in the door for your first data role. Thank you very much, Mark. There's an awesome comment from Monica. Monica, I, I like this comment. Go for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that the biggest benefit, at least in my opinion, to graduate college is really to learn how to learn and like soft skills like time management, because you have all of these courses, you're trying to get assignments on time, you have a job, you're just figuring out how to be an adult. Um, so there's just like so much going on at the same time. Um, so those soft skills. I didn't have, you know, data science wasn't a degree um, for me. So I have uh, business uh, as well. And uh, something that directly, I guess, connects and helps me is like understanding how to gather and adhere to business requirements because your assignments, like they're given, you're given instructions and how well you uh, meet those instructions, the better your grades get. So I think that's a du uh, direct tie, even if you don't have like a data science degree. Uh, if I might just interject there for a second, Monica, does that say something about the way in which our like school systems are preparing people for adulting? Like this whole concept of, oh, we learn to be an adult at the university or at the graduate level, right? These are skills that you don't need a graduate degrees in to understand, right? Um, now, I don't know much about the American or the Canadian systems in education. I've started developing a hypothesis of my own on how Australian education might need to evolve to meet some of those skills and talents. I'd love to hear more about like what you think on how that path looks like in Canada, for example. Yeah, that's a great point. There's a lot of uh, topics of discussion around courses that are given to high schoolers where, you know, like cooking classes or how to... How to write a checkbook and nobody has checkbooks anymore but that was something that was <laughs> discussed when I was there um, but that was never that was never offered so people they didn't know how to manage their finances so then when you had to pay for all of uh, your graduate degrees afterwards you're like oh I don't know let's just get credit cards and figure things out later so there's definitely room for opportunities um, to to enhance the classes given to high schoolers and even middle schoolers. I think we should push classes like, for example, pre-calculus, trigonometry, calculus, push that to college, replace that with logic 
business math, you know, simple classes about your taxes, things like that, right? Because not all high schools, like the vast majority of people who graduate from high school don't actually go to university, right? It might be, we're biased because I'm pretty sure all of us here have some form of higher education, but we just kind of see what we see. Uh, but all that, all that shit should just be pushed for, you know, if you're going to study math or engineering or computer science, just push it to there because they don't really serve. Uh, I mean, definitely teach geometry. I think geometry should be taught in high school. Just there's a certain way of thinking. Um, but yeah, it looks like you want to say some coast up to go for it. I mean, I, I kind of agree and disagree with you on a point. I think we need to start embracing the idea of more open style learning as opposed to necessarily this cookie cutter thing where everyone learns the same thing because it's not going to make sense. Like for me, I wanted after high school, I wanted to go into robotics. Now, it, for something like calculus, it's not something that you really master in like three or six months, right? Um, like the fact that I had four years in, in high school where we were doing calculus at varying degrees of intensity, right? You need that time and the sheer practice with mathematics to, to get to any kind of usable level, right? And now I, I totally agree. We are biased in this room that all of us kind of have that background, have benefited from it, and other people wouldn't benefit from it at all. So I think we need to start thinking more flexibly because the fact that we've stayed in this kind of rigid um, teaching structure has effectively meant that the gap between the skills that industry needs and the skills that school prepares you for, that gap is growing a lot wider. And that's forcing this need for tertiary education and then master's and graduate studies and, you know, for entry-level jobs. So I think that's just, that gap needs, we need to address that gap sooner rather than later. Otherwise, we're just waiting till people are 35 before they can be, uh, you know, hireable at all. And I think that's just not tenable for a society. So I don't know. Maybe that's just my philosophical stance. Go for it, Greg. Yeah, I was going to say, I think if uh, teaching systems or school systems focus more on how to train people on how to fix problems, how to problem solve, how to use, you know, your soft skills to attack different use cases, problem cases, uh, it would be a far more powerful thing. You wouldn't hear professionals today hear about, hey, what do I need to do to learn uh, how to enter the healthcare industry? You wouldn't hear that because in school, I've been taught to approach different problems, different ways, or figure out what tools best fit a specific problem or a list, a set of problems. So, and with that, you know, problem solving skills, I feel like is, is lacking. Uh, come up with a list of use cases and walk me through how and why you would leverage this strategy versus the other one and show me how to surface, you know, which strategy is best. And, and why when it comes to certain problems. At the end of the day, you know, learning technical stuff or special skills at school will not give you everything until you get on board with a company and learn what makes them tick or what their business model is. That's what makes you an expert, right? So when you have a degree, you're only telling that employer that you have the capacity to learn their business model and bring up or and execute what they want you to execute. So focusing on problem solving skills, which is, by the way, including how to work with people, how to empathize, how to explore, test, 
to me, is a far more powerful thing. And which, to your point, Harpreet, you were saying, why don't we push these things, uh, math and stuff like that, in, in college and teach kids the different things. So I would value teaching problem-solving skills in high school a lot, and even in, you know, bachelor's and in master's and things like that as well. So, and, and it's something that is beneficial everywhere you go, right? Whatever industry you cross over from or go to, problem-solving skills is huge. Love that to, you know, to quote Big Sean, why don't schools teach more mathematics, less trigonometry, more about taxes? Uh, Tom, go for it. Tom, Tom uh, we can't uh, hear you yeah, for some reason. Uh, you are unmuted, but for some reason we are unable to hear you, Tom. Uh, in the meantime, anybody you want to speak on on this uh, topic, definitely let me know. Uh, Tom, you can try and, and interject and uh, see what happens. It doesn't look like anything's going on there. Um, just hold your peace until we get past this next question. This will be our our, our last uh, last question here. Uh, it's coming in from Dennis on LinkedIn. Dennis wants to know, uh, how do you find data for portfolio projects that aren't as clean as Kaggle, but raw enough to showcase skills? I have a difficulty finding data to begin with. Census or government uh, websites have been a nightmare. Oh man, data is everywhere, man. Like it is literally everywhere. You've got it on your Spotify uh music listening history you've got it on your wearable devices my car collects data on my driving which um you know, i have to sign out of the uh, app on my wife's phone because if she sees my driving scores she'll be quite upset uh, data is everywhere man like literally everywhere i see there's a bunch of stuff uh that rodney uh by the way rodney thanks for all the wonderful comments on linkedin you know you can you can find data anywhere you just have to think i, I think instead of you have to flip the question around a little bit Instead of thinking about how do you find data, just think about what questions should I try to solve or what questions should I try to make problem, you know, progress on? What questions should I try to answer? Once you clearly define the question, then from there, I think the finding of data, it's an easy next step, but I'd love to hear uh, anybody else's perspective on this, if there are other perspectives. Yeah, everybody's saying data is everywhere. Get an API, find it. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I, I guess like, you're right, find a problem and create your own data set. It's very easy to go and find a well-curated data set. And that's great if you want to learn about the models, great if you want to learn about deployment because that solves that first step for you. But if you want to learn about the data, go build a data set and then you will build it wrong, I guarantee it. Um, and then it will break and it will make your life hell and miserable. And then you will figure out why you shouldn't have created it the way you did. And then you'll learn more about how to create the next data set. And then you'll just improve that way. So it depends which part of the pipeline you want to learn about. If you want to learn about models, go for the off-the-shelf data. If you want to learn about data cleaning and data structuring, don't worry about the models. Find a problem and create your own data set. Yeah, for example, let's say you're interested in figuring out the average time it takes between cars passing by the window of your house, right? Great. You can collect that data manually or you can make it into a computer vision problem, right? Like how do, I'm just going to set up a camera and I'm just going to use machine learning just to count cars as they pass by. And then I'll take that data and then just fit, I don't know what is an exponential distribution for waiting time and, and you know, predict the number of cars that pass by my window on a given day. Like you just think of interesting questions and, you know, find interesting ways to solve them, I guess. Hopefully that Testing. didn't sound, yeah. Yes, you're back. Testing. You're back. Not the big boy. There you go. No, right, go, there was go some, on. so let's, uh, 
Let's integrate brilliance. Monica yes. in the chat and in her statements, learn how to learn. Uh, Greg talking about problem solving. So Costum, you are going to find endless things you have to work on your whole life. See this? I'm still dealing with personal crap of my own, okay? So guys, just a caution. We don't need to learn everything in school. And that's a faulty mentality. Oh, I need to learn this. Go back to school. I promise you, I am not going back to school. Dr. Ives is not going back to school. If I can't learn on my own now, shame on me. And really, Monica's right. We've got to learn to learn. So this is a big point. Develop your own learning plan and make sure you have a learning matrix. And don't think of just learning by topic. Also think of the other dimension. How deep have I gone on each topic? And don't worry about going super deep on every topic. Some of it may be just, I need to know how to use this. Some of it may be, I need to know how to derive this from scratch mathematically and then code it without any libraries. And then there's everything in between, but you have to, you have to be the master of your own learning plan because there's too much to learn everything. No one person can even keep up with everything going on in data science, but you can learn to a degree where you know how to learn very rapidly what you need to learn because you've focused on key concepts. Now, what are the key concepts? Go figure it out, Costa. That, that's part of mastering your own learning plan too. You, to, for me, my key concepts may be a little different than yours. Some of it's going to be guided by passion. Some of it's going to be guided by needs in your role. But I hope that helped. I think mastering your own learning plan and not expecting school to fix all your problems, those are, those are big ones. I love that. It reminds me of this uh, quote, like not, I'm not going to quote it, but this general feeling that David Deutsch was talking about in his book, uh, The Fabric of Reality. He's talking about how back in the days when we didn't have much knowledge, it was possible for a learned person to know everything there was to know. Uh, that's not possible anymore, but it is possible to understand the explanations of things. I think that's what's really foundational. Is just be, if you're able to understand explanations, then you know, you're know you in a good position. By the way, shout out Ben Taylor, you're in the building. Uh, good to see you here, man. Uh, somebody's unmuted, go for it. If not, we can begin to wrap it up. Isn't that, isn't that what machine learning does? Learning to learn? Yeah. yeah it's it's uh, something that we teach machines. Maybe we can teach ourselves as well. It's uh, quite funny. Yeah. I absolutely love it, man. It's, that is what machines do. They learn how to learn. Um, if I may, Harpreet, yes, that's please. such a good point. I literally, when I was learning reinforced learning, I was so humbled by it. Uh, I don't mean by the complication of learning it, but then if I, when I stepped back and abstracted what the agent was doing, it, it, I'm going to change the language a little bit. It came up with a really bad plan, but it operated on that plan. And then it stopped and it looked back and said, hey, how can I improve on that? So it, it used some experience to refine the plan, operate some more, refines the plan. I've been trying to be very cognizant to do that, transformative. That's why I bring up the learning plan too, but also the life plan. I love the Gallup Strength Finder, but I think it missed the mark a little bit. I think it's also good 
to say, what do I suck at that's really holding me back? And how can I fix that? That's what Tom Ives has to do. And I learned that from reinforced learning. It's not like we don't do it because we, we, we realize, oh, I better fix that. But to be more cognizant of it, that's what really helps. Thank you very much. Uh, I guess we'll go ahead and end it there. Thank you guys so much for joining. Don't forget to tune in to the uh, episode that I released today, but I see Greg is unmuted. So sorry, Greg, if there's a follow-up. Didn't I mean to cut you off? No? All right, good. Hopefully you guys get to tune into the episode released earlier today with Pradeep Sangha. Um, it was cool talking to talking to him. Definitely check out that episode. Uh, also, big shout out to the Narrative Science Podcast. Cassidy Shields had me on his show earlier today. Really enjoyed being on that on that podcast. Um, also, Monica, you got you present. No, you're hosting something. Uh, shout out, shout that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, it was yesterday for oh. Data Science Go uh, Connect. However, I will also be at DSGO Virtual next month um, on August 15th. So if you guys want to go there, I'll be there. Yes, October, October, October 15th. I, I messed that up yes. earlier today, too. I called October, August earlier today. I don't know what that was, what that's about. <laughs> um, hopefully, you guys sign up for the dedicated conference that's popping off in a couple of weeks. I'll be presenting there. I'll also be presenting at the machine learning conference on October 15th on behalf of Comet, talking about ML ops and things of that nature. Uh, Antonio, do you get, uh, see, see muted? Do you like an announcement as well? Let it go, man. Let, let us know. Oh, no. I was just saying October, but... <laughs> oh, October, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, guys, don't forget to also uh, tune in on September 22nd, which is this coming Wednesday. Me and my good friend Sadie St. Lawrence will be live on Instagram. So if you are not already following me on Instagram, Data Science Harp is the handle and Sadie St. Lawrence, just her name spelled out, Sadie, S-T-L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, Sadie St. Lawrence. Uh, we'll be live on Instagram. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Sadie's the founder of Women in Data, been having massive impact. Um, so it's going to be a great conversation. Hopefully you guys could join us. Um, I'll be speaking to Mr. Brent Dykes on October 2nd. That'll be live on LinkedIn. Brent, thank you so much for uh, sending the book. Um, I've got to take a picture and post it but I appreciate you sending the book out. Um, so we'll be talking on October 2nd, a couple of other live events. So I'll be live with Brent Dykes. I'll be live with uh, Natalie Nixon. We're going to be talking about the creativity leap. Um, that is also in October. Uh, the date escapes me. And then also Brittany Doe will be talking about her book, uh, Bigger Than Leadership. So uh, those are going to be some live sessions on the podcast and then interviewing a bunch of awesome friends coming up the next few weeks. Um, interviewing joe reese joe what up uh daliana Don, you guys y'all should know daliana uh also just many many people many friends hey, is it <laughs> yeah. is it too late to ask ben for his fishing trip how was that what were the oh, uh, good one cool Ooh, equipment yes. that you brought to the table and uh what was the result uh so it went really really well and a little bad but mostly good <laughs> uh, good good yeah, the weather couldn't have been better. I think our group caught close to 100 fish. Wow. Uh, I could not be happier with the shots that we got. Um, there's so many variables with this trip, right? Like so many things could have gone wrong. Um, but yeah, I think the, the edit will be public in two to three weeks. And then the data set will also be public as well. So yeah, I'll, I'll do a deeper dive, but I, I'd love to share some of the footage with the group in the coming weeks because it's it's jaw-dropping so and then yeah. i'm actually going there right now i'm in wyoming again 
Oh, nice. To wrap, up, wrap up the data set. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, man. I'm looking forward to this deep dive. Like I could uh, learn a lot from that. Uh, 100 fish. That's a lot of fish sticks, man. Uh, ben, I'm really missing Wyoming, buddy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm laughing to myself because we're talking about scraping data and doing projects. And I was chuckling because I'm like, well, I'm going to get a data set where I have to pack a gun because I'm going <laughs> into bear country. So like, yeah, it, it'll be good. This river I'm fishing is insane. It's there quite go, a, an interesting use case. So looking forward to hearing more on that. You know, talk about, you know, it, to me, it's kind of like uh, look into nature and come up with some innovative ideas. So it's quite, quite, quite cool. So looking forward to hearing more. Yeah, thanks for asking about it. All right, guys, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining. Be sure again to tune into the podcast. Join me on Sunday, guys. I know, you know, Jay, it's been a while since you came on a Sunday. So come come back. We miss you on Sundays. Uh, so you guys remember, comment ML office hours on Sunday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Be sure to come <coughs> on that. It'll be live here on LinkedIn as well. Um, be sure to check out these uh, cool episodes of the podcast that uh, are coming up and have been released. And as usual, my friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>